This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by two One Heat Minute Productions. The first, Increment Vice, 45 episodes, deep diving on Paul Thomas Anderson's 2014 masterpiece based off Thomas Pynchon's novel, Inherent Vice, called Increment Vice. Hosted by Travis Woods, produced by myself, Blake Howard, and narrated by the awesome Cat Corbett, takes an, a myriad of unbelievable guests through this sort of stoner noir masterpiece. Megan Abbott, Jordan Harper, Drew McWeenie, Matt Zoller-Zeitz, Walter Chaw, Karina Longworth, Ryan Johnson. Get listening. And if you're into fiction, it came from the deep. Maria Lewis, the host of our Josie the Podcast podcast, is here with her very own audiobook, It Came From The Deep, and an after show, co-hosted by myself. That's in its own feed. It Came From The Deep, Increment Vice, search them wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's get to it. I got an enemy. Me, the most beloved man in Springfield. Ah, it's a weird world, Homer. As hard as it is to believe, some people don't care for me, neither. No, I won't accept that. No, it's true. I got their names written down right here in what I call my, uh, enemies list. Jane Fonda, Daniel Shore, Jack Anderson. Hey, this is Richard Nixon's enemies list. You just crossed out his name and put yours. Okay, give me that. Give me back. Bonnie Gumble. Oh. oh, what'll I do, Mo? Well, why don't you invite him over to dinner? Turn him from an enemy into a friend. Then when he's not expecting it, BAM! The old fork in the eye. Do you think it might work without the fork in the eye? So it's the first time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Wow, 126 episodes into Alan... Jay Pakula and Robert Redford's 1976 masterpiece, All the President's Men, a minute at a time. And, well, I'm really lucky to talk to my friend overseas. Uh, she's not uh, in the socials as much anymore, but she is still one of the most prodigiously talented film reporters and broadcasters that this country, our little country, has ever produced. So much that she's been wholly stolen and embraced by the United States, which I'm extremely happy for. Um, I'm extremely happy also that she's agreed to come onto the show so late. Uh, I did give her the most unbelievable pick of minutes, you might say, from the previous minute by minute show that we did. She got the great ass minute. Uh, and, uh, and she even got to uh, do her impression of Pacino that only I really got to see via the virtual interaction that we had. Um, she's extremely, uh, she's written everywhere. She's covered movies almost everywhere. She's written great books about movies. And uh, I'm really grateful that she's taking time out of her life to talk to me about one minute of one movie. Um, you would find her on TCM. You can find her at our website. Um, this is Alicia Malone. Welcome back Hi. to One Minute Production. Thank you for coming back to All the President's Minutes. No, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about this film. And yes, thank you for giving me the best minute of heat. <laughs> the minute that I've watched over and over again because I just love Al Pacino's face and Hank Azaria's look of surprise. <laughs> it's, 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 um, there are a few, you know, what surprised me in the heat project and also like it comes up, you know, you're, you've got a Bradley minute and it's like Bradley minutes, um, 
in, in all the president's men, I think translate to a couple of those iconic moments you think of in heat, you know, the diner scene and oh, I want the great ass scene, or I want the give me all you got scene. It's like, there was much sought after loud, blustery Pacino, like, you know, um, <laughs> Ralph sit out, like, like people want those minutes in their life. So I'm so glad to have you back on this show, at least a slightly more classy discussion than potentially our last one on a podcast, um, less about women's asses and how they make us feel and more about, <laughs> um, how to, uh, what happens in the face of incredible adversity when you really feel like your guys are, your guys are right there. You guys are standing on it. So first and foremost, because, you know, I, I consider you in my shorthand of people, if like, I want to know classic movies and experts, like when you look back 1970s, there's a lot of classic movies and you kind of focus in TCM land well before this, but you kind of know reflexively now, I think Alicia, what a classic movie is like, do you have a definition that you have a working definition or like you and the gang at TCM sort of knock about? Because I think it's like this weird mix of rewatchability, discovery, you know, con- you know, constant inspiration for conversation. And I'd love to hear mm. you talk about that because that's a real lens that I think you've got an insight that maybe others don't have as much of or don't have to have it like a fine, uh, you know, you know, like a fine sharp object that you're constantly carving out like all these great, you know, analyses of different films. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something we discuss a lot at Turner Classic Movies because it used to be that classic was a certain era. So you'd talk about the golden age of Hollywood. So you'd say classic films are from maybe the beginning of cinema, the silent era through the golden age up to and including the 1970s and then from the 80s on is kind of modern movies. But now it's, it's getting, the definition's getting looser and it's more about rewatchability, as you mentioned. I think it's more about the story. Is this film, when you watch it, does it still engage you in the same way that it engaged audiences back when it was made? How influential has it been on movies before or after? Uh, Who are the great movie stars that are in the film? And on TCM now, you know, we just did this whole series on uh, women make film so it's all about female filmmakers where we had films from all over the world and all different eras so we had very modern films as well as films from the extreme beginnings of cinema so the definition of classic is definitely a lot looser and a lot more up for interpretation we also think more about the culture these days so especially with the job that I do on TCM, context and curation are the two very important factors for TCM. So context, us as hosts, we always talk about the time and place in which that film was made, especially if the film contains things like blackface, which modern audiences today are shocked to see. We never edit films, we never delete scenes, uh, but we just talk about them and put them in greater context. And You know, we do that to keep these films alive because we believe that every film has a place in film history and uh, they're all worthy of discussion and they've all moved the medium forward in one way or the other. So I think when it comes to me, classic films are definitely about, um, you know, does it suck you in the same way as it would if you're seeing it for the first time? And uh, that is definitely the case in All the President's Men. <laughs> yeah. Rewatching this film in preparation, 
you know, I thought I'll just have it on in the background and then I'll pay close attention to my minute because I've seen the film so many times. And then I just kept watching it. I just kept being drawn back to it <laughs> because it's so compelling. And uh, I, I love that about TCM. And it's like, there's, I, I don't know if people appreciate this, but like one of my favorite scenarios to view films was like very lucky in university you have film like a film studies class because you know especially when you're in a, a, a burgeoning cinephile you would have a lecturer who really knew the text be able to say this is where it fits and this is where it sits and this is where it came from and this is the studio and this is the producer and these were the egos and this was the technology or you know particularly you know even if you it's not a traditional classic sort of drama or, or, you know, a crime film or whatever. It was like science fiction films. It's like, Oh, this, you know, push this boundary and enable this. And this team then went on to make this. And this was the first thing they did together. So it's kind of a really fun little thing that you do. And I love, I, there is nothing more uh, affronting to me than certain large corporations who want to like edit movies retroactively to make them more palatable. Like I just think there's mm. nothing grosser. Um, in the world it's like just give me give me what's and all you know and and put a warning i think that that's what they try and do with like these little intertitles of like you know there are portrayals of blah 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 but it's not the same it's not quite the same yeah. so that's where you guys do it and you've you've fallen into the trap that this movie made me fall into which is during one heat minute and i've told this many times on the show but i think for anyone new who's listening is like during one heat minute there was no way i could watch heat while i was doing things around the show you know because i was fastidiously prepare, uh, preparing everything, talking to guests, taking notes of the different minutes. And then I'd just be like, I need something else on while I'm doing other things. And I would put on all the president's men because on video on demand, if you've got iTunes or whatever, or an Apple TV, a is the top left. It's just right there. It's like, I don't need to go any further. Right. And you just click and it's on and you're like, I don't, I didn't have to move. I'll just have it on. Cause I want the white noise in the house. And so many times it's like, some people say, I think it was, there's like a philosopher who, who talked about it. And I don't know if it was like, it's multiple philosophers or just different thoughts, but it's like, once you see mastery in one thing, you can kind of see mastery in all things. And I think because I was so laser focused on heat and all of the things that I, that resonated for me, that it was compelling, that it kept drawing me back, that it had all those things of influencing people. And you watch other filmmakers make it. And it's got those stars that have that quality that just make you look up from whatever you're doing I just started seeing everything that I was looking at in, in a whole bunch of different ways, but seeing all those same things in presidents just over and over and over again. I'm like, there's no gunfights. Mm. There's no, you know, there's no cat and mouse. There's no heist. There's no, you know, like there's no confrontations per se. So there's, you know, all those like big dramatic exclamation points. This movie is vastly more compelling than it has any right to be on paper. And yet, it completely is transfixing every time you watch it. And I think every minute of this movie, you know, as we, as we roll into the end of the film, um, I continue to just go, it doesn't make sense why this movie is so great or, it, or it completely does that you've got Alan Pakula, you've got William Goldman, you've got Gordon Willis, you've got, um, you know, Sam Peckinpah's editor, Robert Wolf, and you've got Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman and the incredible cast around them. And particularly right in this moment, you've got two guys from 12 Angry Men, and you've got and you've got Jason Robards in the same damn scene together, and it's like this is as good as it gets for me. It really is, and you know I think that's a, a mark of a classic that 
you are compelled to watch it. You can't stop watching it. And there's definitely those films, like All the President's Men, is if you were to turn on the television and it was on, then you would have to watch it to the end, even if you yeah. came into the beginning. Yeah. And it's also a mark of a classic that it it changes with viewings. You know, yes. like you said, you reveal more and more as you watch it. Also, you know, as my own understanding of American politics <laughs> has increased, <laughs> yeah. I will admit when I, I first saw this film, and I must have been during my teenage years when I became determined to tick off all those lists and, you know, see all the, the films that would make me a film buff. Um, <laughs> and I did not understand I, that's, it at all. I, that's, at this point, that's undeniable. Can we just say, can we get it out of the way? I think you've ticked off enough <laughs> lists now. You're officially a film buff. You don't need There's to always keep... <laughs> more to watch. That's the great thing about film. Always more to watch, always more to learn. Yes. Just when you think you have gotten to the bottom of your watch list or you've learned no. a lot, you no. discover more. No. Uh, but I, yeah, I, as a teenager, I was like, okay, so here's the the best list of whatever. And this was pre-internet. So I had to go to books and Leonard mm -hmm. Moulton's movie guide. Leonard Moulton's movie guide. And take that down to the video store. And uh, I watched All the President's Men and had no idea what the hell was going on, but I was still compelled. Yes. And, you know, that's, it's great to talk, especially now to talk to like a, an, an American adopted Aussie about it. Because like when I speak to Americans, I'm like, we knew more probably about American politics and especially about Nixon from the Simpsons than we could have ever learned yeah. from any other film that was going around. Uh, and, and then when you absorb these other movies, when you, you know, you dive in on the big ones, the president's men or the JFKs and things like that, you start to sort of wet your beak because the politics in our country in America is so drastically different. And even in the UK, yes, it's, you know, it's, yes, it's the same, but there's also like nuances and things like that that are so that can just go over your head. So like, um, it, it, for me, I've, uh, when we talk about learning, whatever preparation that I thought that I'd done this year, when you are studying this film live as, you know, real, you know, social and political and civil unrest and turmoil is happening in the United States. I could, you know, I've learned so much more about American politics from talking to the guests on this show than mm. I almost did in the preparation for it. And I felt like I needed to do that preparation to make sure that I was, comfortable to, and, and appropriately, you know, uh, prepared to talk about American politics because of how it entangles. But yeah, I agree. It's, there is nothing wrong if this is, you know, your even first or second or third or fourth viewing of missing things, I think. Yeah. Um, There's so my, many names, you know, na you've got to follow. Names, na names fly by. I, 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 and even they do to me sometimes, you know, you, you remember, you're like, well, who actually says that? Um, and like, who was P? Who was P again? <laughs> P, P was Porter. P is Porter. Okay. P, Porter. <laughs> we were just going to bury it. We're just going to bury it. Um, and it's, 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 it's one of those things. And also, um, little what now I find myself, uh, you know, there's that great scene early on in the film, um, the sort of six minute sequence where Redford's Woodward is making a lot of phone calls and I've been watching it and just loving it. Cause it's one of obviously one of the epic scenes of the movie and it goes over multiple minutes and gone back and listened to a couple of the episodes with the great guests at the time have talked about it. And it's been talked about, but I just now I'm like straining to hear what the secretaries and the people answering the phone are say like, what, what is that Mullen, Mullen, Mullen and company? Like, and I'm trying <laughs> to like, I, you know, you find yourself straining. That's the reward of like, if you go back and you want to be hyper obsessed, you will find these little details. Um, so let's talk about great editors. Let's talk about Ben Bradley really quickly before we dive into this. Um, mm. You know, uh, Martin Balsam, 
Um, two is on screen, uh, Jack Warden. Um, I mean, I feel like these, you know, if, if there's a roster of the most wanted actors in a TCM classic movie, I think that these mm. guys are almost in the top 10. Like there's so many Absolutely. classics that are just all through them. So um, can you like talk a little bit about this scene? Like the surprise of getting all of your, I guess, like Alicia's guys, like your dudes that are up <laughs> on there, like TCM dudes. I know. It's <laughs> so exciting when you get to see these great actors and great stage actors together. So yes. they had all worked together on the New York stage and then to get to see them share a scene together. And like you said, it's, it's the great excitement of being like, oh, yeah, you were from this and you were from this and like six degrees of separation. And Jason Robards, I think, you know, obviously his performance is incredible. He won the Oscar for it. Um, In a crazy Oscar year too. Crazy Oscar year. I mean, you like, think about Taxi Driver, you think about yeah. all the films that were up for awards that year and, and that year itself for film was such a great year and so many films that were released during that time you know but he it's it's amazing to think that and I'm sure you've covered this on the show already but that uh Alan J. Bakula wasn't sure about hiring Jason Robards you know he was obviously a great stage actor he was known for his you know Eugene O'Neill productions and then his Eugene O'Neill adaptations on (laughs) TV and on film. And so he was known much more of being this vulnerable, soulful character, which is not at all like Ben Bradley. And uh, he insisted that he could do it. He was also in that terrible car accident. And so he wasn't sure whether he could do it, but Robot said, yes, I could do it. I look like Ben Bradley. I sound like Ben Bradley. <laughs> I could do it. And just the, the performance itself, when you look at it, he is so subtly owning the screen you know he is there in in my minute with his feet up on the table yes and just commanding that scene and and he is like we said he's with this whole room full of brilliant actors and you mentioned 12 angry men it feels almost that way when they're all around the table and going back and forth and trading between each other of like who's going to cover what story but just to have him there right in the center and just the casual way that he delivers the line, I think is such a great choice. It's funny that, you know, and we haven't gone into it as much detail as you would have thought. So I'm so glad that you brought it up, which is Robards being a stage performer, Robards kind of having an eclectic career, you know, and, and, and was originally in, um, you know, from a cinematic perspective, isn't like the battle ballad of Campbell Hogue and like, you know, those, those sorts of things, you know, what's one Tora, Tora. Yeah. The, you know, he's, he's done a whole weird variety of things, but he's not all, he's also not, and this is another kind of historical thing. He's not a classical method trained actor either, but what he does in this movie, just for context, and we mentioned it a long time ago is he would spend all day on set even in scenes that he wasn't filming, he's like, Bradley would be here and he would sit in the office and he'd read and they'd do all the long coverage and things like that. And it's not a stand in. It's not some person with a, you know, a gray wig or just a white haired guy that was bombing around on the set as a stand in, like just sitting in his office in velvet suits or with his feet up on the desk. It's actually robots. Mm. And so there's this crazy thing of not only was he confident that he could do it and then showed that he could do it, he had this weird, probably different mindset of how he was going to approach to do it and how his influence would, would 
influence the other actors on set. And so, mm. and even as we said, that 12 Angry Men vibe is such the staging of this scene, especially in the previous scene and the, the editorial meeting, because there's lots of bit, 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 it's like tete a yeah. tete, like ball breaking, you know, like, oh, this and that. But this moment is so great because it's like, oh, bam, we've got so many enemies. And he's like, the way that he delivers the line, which we'll get into and we'll watch it together in just a moment, it, it feels like the final word. And we yes. do absolutely get the final word, but it's like, once Bradley says this, says this line, delivers his beautifully handwritten note, which we'll unpack for you guys shortly, it's, uh, it feels so final. And it's like, it's like all right, we, we don't need to discuss this anymore. This is what we're doing now. Um, yep. And it's just wonderful. So we've, we've only just scratched the surface talking about it. So Alicia and I are going to watch this minute together to, um, uh, for, you know, just to see everything again. You guys are going to listen along. Then we're going to come back and talk about it and unpack it for you. Why not denial, denial? Fuck it, let's stand by the boys. Okay, Farn. All right, here's our headline. Radio Hanoi reports a United States-North Vietnam agreement for settlement of the Vietnam War. Artie, Artie was just saying in the few seconds we have left, the same that vibrato sound that she had then she still has now. There we go. Woodward, what do you find out? What did he say? What time is it? He fell asleep. Oh, God damn it. Look, as you might imagine, doing a show called All the President's Minutes, I'm doing lots of weird Googling. Sometimes even about the digressions on this show, like Harold Holt, was the CIA involved? You start Googling all these different people. I'm probably being put on a list. And I know most of you are probably thinking, why don't you just use incognito mode? Let me tell you something. Incognito mode does not hide your activity. It doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you clear your browsing history, your internet service provider can still see every single website you visited. That's why even when I'm at home, I never go online without using ExpressVPN. It doesn't matter if you get your internet in the States from Verizon or Comcast or in Australia, if you're using the Telstra's and the Optus's, ISPs in the US can legally sell information to ad companies. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure service so your ISP can't see the sites you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. Most of the time, I don't even realize I have ExpressVPN on. It runs seamlessly in the background. It's easy to use. All you have to do is tap a button and you're protected. It's available on all your devices, on your computer, on your phone, even on your smart TV. So there's no excuse for you not to be using it. Protect your online activity today with a VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. Visit my exclusive link, which is expressvpn.com slash OHM, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's express, E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash OHM, expressvpn.com slash OHM to learn more. And now back to the show. It's a good minute. It's got everything. It's got the it news. It's got, it's got the newsroom vibe. It's got the. It's got, it's got the light and dark. Light and dark. Such a great contrasting. List. Yeah. I I want to really just register for everyone 
when you're watching that. That's 126 minutes, so it's it's two hours and five minutes on the dial. I've heard on HBO Max because it is on HBO Max in the states that it's 15 seconds after that because there's a 15 second message at the beginning of every HBO Max film for some reason, whatever. Um, but Bradley's t- writing a note, and the choice, just this beautiful like. I want the anticipation of this moment to be monumental. He hands it to Howard. Howard looks at it. He hands it over Balsam's character. He hands it over to Jack Warden. Jack Warden looks at it. You don't see what he's reading. You see the entire rest of the editorial team completely silent. Look over like, what has he actually said on this thing? And then it cuts down to this little note where it's just like, we stand by our story, Bradley. And then Jason Robard's face just perfectly framed, really blisteringly clear. There's not a shadow cast on his face. He couldn't be more precise. It's like, fuck it, we'll stand by the boys. And there's a pause and everyone goes, okay. And then just like everyone gets back to work. It's like the greatest. It's just, I don't, you know. It really is. I mean, Jason Robards pointed out that he was concerned about playing this character once he got the script because he realized that most of Bradley's scenes were very repetitive, right? There's mostly him saying, we need more sources. Can you get more corroboration? Uh, Is there's not a story here? You know, so they had to figure out different ways to stage each scene and, and make it feel different each time. But then you get this moment. And like you said, it's, it's such a monumental moment because I think it's the first time that although he has been supportive of uh, Woodstein, as he calls them, <laughs> right from the beginning, he this is the first time that he voices that and that he shows that he's willing to stand by these men, you know, even if he thinks they need more sources and everything else that he'd been saying before. So it feels like a very monumental moment, but it's, it's almost a throwaway the way he says it. And he's just like, this is my non-denial denial. And then passes <laughs> off the note and, uh, good call, and then good call, says, good call back to a previous scene. It's really Yeah, good. exactly. And then just throws away, fuck it. We'll stand by the boys, you know, and it's, it's just such a, a great, um a little tiny little moment that is so monumental and i think also says a lot about ben bradley and his determination to be an editor and the way that he you know his real concern as has been pointed out was for the paper it wasn't necessarily about the people involved in the scandal or getting anyone's uh name involved who wasn't involved it was more about will this do damage to my paper and he just had that real instinct about him as an editor that he stood for the truth and it was all about the facts and getting the sources right and that when it was needed he would go to bat for his uh, for his journalists which of course later got him in trouble when he had to return the Pulitzer Prize yes well that's a that's a that's an interesting tangent that we could go down but it's all um but we'll just pause on that for a second I, I think you're so right of it's also nice that this is the first time, I guess, behind closed doors where he's showing his confidence in the guys and showing their confidence in, in the paper, in, in the approach, which is we're going to get all the sources. We're going to trust our, our people. We're going to scrutinize them. We're going to make them go the extra mile. We're going to get the next person. And all of the steps that have led us up to this point say that we we're on sure footing, you know, like, the verbatim calls and everything's pointing it out. And it's like, there has been a gap. Something's gone wrong. Someone's doubled back, which is kind of the worst nightmare for 
it's kind of the worst nightmare for any journo to have a really reliable source to think that you have something to write it and 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 make you you're not wrong but you've just made an assumption in how that information has come out and then them to backflip on you completely you know i call him slippery hugh sloan now stephen collins's character because of that very <laughs> reason um and and i think in those moments it's like it's so nice for them in this moment to see that he is completely behind them and i think what's great is in the silence of all the other guys they are ready to go either way on this like that's what i see in these guys faces you know i, I for anyone who wonders how i do the preparation for this show i try and watch around you know it used to be about 10 minutes either side. Now it's about five minutes either side of the scene and just over and over the minute just to get prepped. And every time I was looking at these guys' faces, it's like they're ready for him to go, yeah, we were wrong. They're ready for him to go to throw the boys under the bus. Yeah, we're investigating what went wrong with our sources. and da, da, da. Like they're completely ready for any eventuality. And what's so heartening is that he says, fuck it, we'll stand by the boys. In fact, hmm. fuck it, we'll stand by the boys needs to be like, you know, when you find out that, Martin Scorsese is making another movie with Robert De Niro. Yeah. Like that needs to be the only response I want to see on it's Twitter. Catchphrase. <laughs> Catchphrase. Fuck it. We'll stand by the voice. You know <laughs> yeah, what I mean? Exactly. Like that, that's what it needs to be more in our lexicon because, uh, because of that. And, and again, like you said, staging is so important. And I think the mo- and editing in this movie is so important because it's very deliberate. Like it, there's not a lot of cuts and I think that you would you would see this in great you know true classics of like early cinema era of like very deliberately paced long staged mm-hmm. scenes, great movement in sets and spaces that don't cut away. And so there's like in that in many respects, this movie has that very classically formal classic formal feel. And so when you cut to like looks and reaction shots you notice everything, like everything just pops. It's like, oh, okay, well, something's big here. Something's going to happen. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. You know, uh, obviously films evolved out of theatre, so the way that they were filmed at the very beginning was very much like a theatre play with a one locked-off shot, long takes, letting the actors and the dialogue speak. And then, you know, editing started to become more popular and then a lot of uh, directors you know, love to have their own visual style and show off their flourish, but sometimes you can say so much more with just simple editing and simple camera moves, although they are tricky at times with all the the deep focus photography that's going on here um, in in the movie. But it's uh, it just lets the actors breathe, it lets the story breathe, and then the moments when you need the close-up, that's when you get those reactions and that you, you feel intrinsically as an audience member that that's something you need to pay attention to with the close up that tells you like, this is a signpost. This is something important. And also here you have the classic insert shot of the note, you know, showing us as if we're looking at the note to see exactly what it says. And uh, like you mentioned before we started recording, it's very lovely handwriting. Beautiful handwriting. It's got quite a flourish to it. I mean, (laughs) this is the thing, Alicia, I haven't seen a note like that since year nine, you know, know. in in Australia. There hasn't been a nice note passed to me. The cursive. The little, little, very bubbly cursive, like, you know, you know, what are you doing this weekend from like a a pretty girl? Like, that's nice. You know, I I don't think I've received anything such that since, but it's, it's one of those things that is really striking. You love, and, and also 
God, he's got away with words. He's like, we stand by our sorry. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's his response is that's just simply, is simply that succinct. And you know, that's why he's the guy with the red pen and the vel- even though he's in a velvet suit when he's wielding it, but like, that's, he's the guy with the red pen, just like that. Nah, we stand by our yeah. story. This is it. Um, one thing that you said as well, it's, I think it, that's a such, it's such an interesting bridge to watch the evolution of cinema from silent cinema, which absolutely relied way more heavily on movement and motion and action to tell the story. And then the bridge into, you know, um, you know, talky cinema and sound and then the inclination of that. Well, okay, we can actually, we can actually look at kind of how there's a bridging gap between theater and art. And then those two things. And it's like, it's so funny to see, you know, you look at George Miller and you're like, George Miller doesn't like classic movies where people are standing around talking. George Miller's like watching Buster Keaton over and over again. It feels like, you know, before he goes and makes a Mad Max Fury Road. But I think, and, and but you then you look at someone like a Sorkin and his theatrical underpinnings, you know, sometimes it's like, that's where you get excited and you've seen his evolution a little bit, even just in the leap from Molly's game to say the trial of Chicago seven, for example, of like, understanding of cinema because you know mm-hmm. you watch you watch rob reiner you know you watch rob reiner take a sorkin script you watch danny boyle take a sorkin script you watch david fincher take a, an aaron sorkin script and it's like oh these these people are the aestheticists they kind of like they are putting a rhythm and a beat and a tempo into the words that like completely is elevated and makes it more dynamic whereas sorkin is more conservative because the dialogue and the characters are king um, and the, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's really interesting to watch those different styles evolve and, and there's a real delicacy, I don't know, a delicate way that you can do it with, um, you can make things really flat. And I think that this movie isn't that there are yeah. great dialogue scenes that are well staged and well composed, but somehow Willis and Pakula don't make them ever feel flat. Like not, even though there's like yeah. lots of shot reverse shot classic stuff, I don't, and yeah, I think I, it's a. I can't it's get to that. The, I'm not sure what it is. Well, I think for me, you know, Yogi mentioned like, so silent cinema, the very beginning of silent cinema, it was just like a locked off camera. And then editing came in, I think, at 1901 yeah. with uh, a sh- shot with a, it was a fireman pulling a fire alarm. <laughs> yes. And that was like the first the first cut shot um and then it evolved from there and then like you said silent cinema without dialogue had to be very over the top and theatrical uh with all the movement and so you knew exactly what was happening in the story and then it started to go back and forth between these very theatrical staid styles and the more like interesting fast-paced and the thing that's interesting about this film is that it has a lot of long takes like you said but one thing that Alan J. Pakula has always been great at doing is the sense of urgency and the sense mm. of a ticking clock. Mm. And he takes a story like this where the investigation last, lasted for years, you know, and he makes it exciting, edge of your seat stuff. It feels like there is that real sense of emergency happening throughout the whole film. And you see that in the second part of the minute that we'll get to. But I think in terms of not making it feel too, like, boring or flat it's a lot to do with how much action is going on in every scene you know when you get the shots of dustin hoffman against these gigantic government buildings even that is saying a lot about you know pakula has talked about the david versus goliath feeling that he was going for in the film 
or especially the newsroom where you see all the people have going behind them and you know Gordon Willis having to make a fluorescent <laughs> lit <laughs> studio look interesting and not look flat but no shadows at all because they wanted the post to be the place of truth and then when they go outside that to be the shadowy darkness as they look for clues and you see that in this minute as well but having to make a fluorescent office look interesting and doing that deep focus you know one of the shots when Redford is on the phone and I was watching it again going how did they do that because it's like his face is perfectly in focus and then everything on his right side camera left is perfectly in focus so you can see all the way down to the end people walking back and forth but on the other side of the frame it's out of focus yes i'm like i don't understand how they managed to do that i don't know enough about cameras and lenses but it just kept each shot interesting even when you're just looking at robert redford's face on the phone it's you're so right and um it- it's not important to know these terms, but just for, for clarity, because there's so many of the shots, a split diopter shot is sort of one of the key p- pieces of the language of this movie. And that's exactly it, because it's like, it's trying to, especially early on in the film, it's trying to establish that while these guys are in the foreground, often whether it be Hoffman or Redford in the foreground, there is like a hubbub of activity behind them. So there's so much other stuff that's happening in the background that right now Watergate hasn't actually like elevated and crested to being the important story that it is. They're sort of fighting for it to have that air. And Gordon Willis is a maestro with a split diopter shot. And in fact, Willis would often operate his own cameras because he designed a split diopter that could be, that could be manually adjusted. So to do these locked off long takes with Redford that slowly zoom in and adjust and require you to be able to zoom in and adjust the split diopter shot perfectly to take things out of focus in the background that were crisp, his cameraman wouldn't do it. So mm. Willis did it. And, That's amazing. and uh, you know, there's even now one of the biggest fans of this movie going around is Steven Soderbergh, which yeah. is, you know, a, a really high, a high compliment because he's literally one of the most exciting filmmakers working. Um, but Soderbergh was like, you know, has famously like gotten rigs from Gordon Willis to learn about the shots that they did in this movie. And he's like, it's the impossible thing of like, you have to have a camera operator slash director of photography who's so just brave really. Cause you could just kill a shot like with, with like taking it out of focus, that's manually zooming and focusing his own camera while oh the thing's going. And so I think that that's the other thing of like Pakula, Redford as producer, actor, Goldman, plus Willis, you've got people who are just so damn good at their job, all working like right at the peak of their powers and having the stones mm-hmm. to be like, oh, no, I can make this shot happen. I just have to use a tool that no one likes using because it could basically mm-hmm. kill your shot and ruin a shot multiple times. And I'm going to manually do it myself because I'm going to keep my eye through the lens and like make it happen so that it like it, it comes into vision in the way that we want it to. And Pakula trusting Willis. It's just great. It's, and yeah. that, and th- those are the scenes that we're starting to see unfold in early in the movie and, and obviously later. Yeah, and it reminds me, you know, a little bit of Citizen Kane, you know. Yeah with Greg Toland's photography and all of the deep focus stuff that he pioneered with Orson Welles. And um, 
and that also just adds to the flurry of activity of the newsroom and the exciting stuff that's happening within those fluorescent <laughs> lit walls. Oh, amazing. And so much detail to look at within the office as well. I think one thing I love talking to you about, Leisha, is like, um, I, I, I can, is, and I feel like you're a person after my own heart is you can go when someone's like recommending a new TV show, that's 24 episodes long in the first season and they're all an hour. I'm like, I literally haven't done all of 1935 yet. So I'm just going to, yeah. I'm just going to go back to that. Like we'll exactly. just, we'll go, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll just go back to that. Cause I can then watch probably 20 movies, you know, cause they're all kind of an hour and a half long. I can learn that's some exactly stuff that is, is influenced decade after decade. And I, and I think that that's the, you know, that's the kind of inclination with this movie. There's a lot of, real students of cinema and you know the cinematic language here that are kind of like doing stuff that know all the tricks of the trade but then are trying to be inventive and organic with it um we haven't even gotten to what's exciting which is a red flag a hard cut to the red flag in a pot plant outside of woodward's apartment and what's great here i just love the you know we're heading up to our final deep throat scene which is amazing Mm -hmm. um but I love that he fell asleep because me as a dad of two, I can tell you falling asleep can happen. Exhaustion <laughs> is real. Like, it's like And so yes. if you are absolutely knackered or you've been working your guts out on a project or whatever, and you know that sometimes it's like when you even sit down, like I did the worst thing uh, after, you know, doing editing, even on this project last night, I laid down for like a minute on the couch last night and I was like, I have to get up now because if I'm, if my head is down for one more minute, I'm out. Like it's, it's just going to happen. So I kind of love that <laughs> Bernstein Hoffman is like, Hey man, what'd you find out? He's like, yeah, you fell asleep. You gone. Yeah. You <laughs> fell asleep. It's, it's I know. Great. I, because it's such a terrible feeling too. When oh. you wake up, like I used to work, you know, back in the day for sunrise on channel seven oh. in Australia and so I had to wake up, I think, at 3.30 in the morning to God. get there at 4 a.m. And it was such a horrible feeling when I would forget to set my alarm and someone would call me and I'd be like, oh, my God, I'm late. Oh, i got to go run. But I also love this moment because, you know, not only is it funny and it also says a lot about the exhaustion and what they were going through just trying to get this story done is that it's a moment where we see real energy from Woodward. And that's something that Robert Redford talked about his struggle in actually doing this character because the character of Bob Woodward had to be so um, controlled and so uh, quiet in his performance. And they said he, he's more of a killer on the inside, I think is the way that they described it. And so you didn't get to see him explode into action you know that was more Dustin Hoffman's uh, Bernstein just sort of sort of flailing about and <laughs> just uh being a ball of energy so here you really get to see him what would, would spring into action and run and of course that feeling of waking up late and having to rush there adds to the exasperation that we then see in the following deep throat scene and it's it's just one of those things is as we're rolling in, it's urgency and it's sprinting, but it's also a guy who is now at least hyper aware of the fact that he may be being followed. So not only are you trying to sprint to not lose the opportunity to talk to your major source, but 
you have to do that with the level of tradecraft that he's been coaching you on for this entire time of like, okay, I need mm-hmm. you to change cabs. I need you to do this. And watching him sprint down that, that sort of dark, you know, Washington street and watch you see all the street lights just sort of casting through the shadows and him just like running down in a, in a frantic panic. It's, you know, I wasn't thinking about it as much in other viewings of it, but maybe it's you and maybe it's the fact that it's, you know, Noir Vember, but it's just like, what is the perspective of that shot? Like it feels very much like that could be the perspective of someone sitting in a car, watching him run down the street, you know? Mm. And it's one of the first times that I've had that feeling watching this scene, but I'm like him sprinting down the street in that way that totally could be a surveillance fan, someone watching him. I mean, there's thousands of movies we've seen with that, but it's like the movie's yes. not obvious enough to show you that, but I just had that feeling of like, what is this making me feel yeah. like? Where is the camera? I know. It's right there. I think there. That's, that's something that Bakula is so good at is just sort of placing the camera in the way that you might not intrinsically think of, of uh, wait, where is that camera? Who is that looking? But much like, you know, Hitchcock did with something yeah. like Rear Window, it makes you feel voyeuristic. It makes you feel as if you're looking and you're yeah. in the shadows. And obviously, like we were saying before, with the the post office being very bright and light and about the truth and then shadows when they leave. But here the shadows feel truly menacing because it yes. feels like anyone or anything could be hiding and in watching this minute and maybe my minute cuts out just before this, but when the car pulls up. Yes. Just and before. Yeah. So that moment, you know, reminds me of the classic cat jumping out of the bushes, you know, <laughs> yes, that sort yes. of fright and is that, or is that not? And, and that surprise element is definitely there. It does feel very much like a film noir. In fact, you know, the whole film I think feels less like a political film and more like a detective story. Yes. And taking, and I think that's, you know, where you talk about the alchemy of this movie and all those people, it's like, that's Goldman being the genius that he was finding a way in. He's like, how do I, all these guys are detectives and that's what investigative journalists are. Ultimately they're like detectives, except, you know, they're, they're, they're indicting someone with a pen, you know, they're not, they're not, they're not taking them to court. They're trying to find the proof to put it in the papers to then incentivize law enforcement to sort of carry on with what they're doing. And so that whole, even that whole ethos of like following the money and all that sort of stuff, I just love in that. And, and, and you're right as it's like, um, I, a kind of noirish detective movie does start when a crime scene, when, when people get caught doing a crime that people don't understand what they're doing. Like that's a very, Mm -hmm. they're here to, they're here to bug people. Why are they bugging them? Well, you know. And usually the crime has nothing to do with the actual, you know, the (laughs) actual mission, the actual plot, you know, it's kind of the MacGuffin or it's, it's the lead up to what then is revealed to be a larger conspiracy. And, it doesn't get any more validating of your theory there. Like of like the, the, the Watergate was a MacGuffin to say that like, it's not Watergate's the tip of the iceberg. Like Watergate's, yes. even though we're, everyone's it's synonymous now, you know, adding the gate suffix to everything all around <laughs> yeah. the world, it's synonymous with the Watergate break-in. It's that is the tip of the iceberg. It is the covert operations of like political mm-hmm. interference across the, across lines and then, and then disrupting the sort of natural reactions of all those institutions that are set up to protect from those sorts of things from happening and like blocking them and Nixon putting his own cronies in the heads of the FBI and all those fun things. Exactly. And the first time people started to question 
the president and yeah. people in charge and start to realize that maybe they don't always yeah. have the best interests of the entire public <laughs> in mind, you know, and, and in watching this film again, you know, not only do I think about that in American politics and also about, you know, of course you think about journalism and how much it's changed with the invention of the internet and the cell phone and how yeah. many things would be different in this film if, you know, they had a cell phone. Um, but it also makes me think about the idea of uh, truth no longer mattering anymore, you know, yes. that you have, you have different versions of truth and you can subscribe to whichever one suits you best. And no longer do we have the kind of uh, trust in these media institutions that we should have for places like the Washington Post and New York Times who do really incredible journalist investigative work and break important stories. Now people are less likely to trust them. Whereas in this movie, as it showed, even when you had the people being involved in the story denying the story as the Post was printing it, there was still the sense of it's in the Post, it's the truth. Yeah, it's... And it's we believe it, it's fact. Yeah, and su such is that even subtle things of like journalists who have talking to other government officials as part of, you know, regular programming were f asking follow-up questions. And when they weren't getting the answers that was helping to inspire further writing and interrogation, because it's like, you know, um, very early on in one of the editorial meetings, it's like their concern level was increased because other papers weren't printing what they were writing. Because if you are breaking a story that is, for, you know, potentially as big as what these guys are breaking, it's, it's, it's that exact thing of like, Oh, well, other people should be printing it. And eventually they were. Um, but yeah, no, I, it, it is a real strange thing that there are things that I've hated. I don't like even saying the words anymore, but the very concept of fake news or alternative mm. facts makes me feel stupid. Like it just makes mm -hmm. me angry. I'm like, I, I just, you can't, you know, the, the implication is then that all news news, meaning just like new things that are happening on a local or a, national or an international level is it's all fake and it's like who benefits from this being fake you know who yeah. uh, you know th th that's one question and the next question is a fact is a fact like there is definitely opinion and a subjective spin that can happen on what ha you know in commentary and i think that magazine television shows that have like countless hours of time to fill like just talking about one fact ad nauseum have kind of helped to infuse like stupid things like it's just like we please just wait till tomorrow until the paper has all the facts on the front page the best invention in basically ever mm -hmm. <laughs> that just succinctly tells you what the most important story of this is today and all of the facts and then this beautiful newspaper that'll have all those things it's yeah it's it's a really yeah it's a strange time it's, um it's a strange time that we have lost the hierarchy of opinion, you know, yes. before there were experts that you trusted because they're experts, scientists, you believe scientists because they're scientists. Yeah. <laughs> so when they tell you something, you believe it. Uh, nowadays, that doesn't happen so much. And, you know, it's funny to think that although the internet may have helped Woodward and Bernstein you know, crack the case, you know, Woodward wouldn't have to have gone through all of those phone books <laughs> to find, you know, one specific name or, you know, get the girl who worked in the archives to find something you would just Google. But 
it's actually disrupted journalism so much, the internet, and it's also um, made it possible for people to live in their own reality. Yes. And so the, the terrifying thing is that these algorithms that control, you know, what we search, what we look at, our social media, hence why I'm not really on there anymore, is because the algorithms are just getting so much more sophisticated all the time that they're just feeding us more and more of what we want to see and less, you know, diverse opinions. And so you can really, really, truly just live in your own world, your own reality. And, and I thought about that when I listened to a podcast after the results of the election were announced here. And it was a podcast, you know, with both Trump supporters and Biden supporters talking about their thoughts on the election. And you hear Trump supporters and you hear the pain, like the real pain and grief that they have truly believing that this election was stolen from Trump and actually really believing it. And you can understand if that is your belief and that is, you see that as reality, how terrifying that is. Like that's a terrifying concept. So it's just, um, I don't know the answer to it at all, but I watch a film like this and it, it makes me wish for a time before that happened, before the internet and before, you know, us all living in our own separate bubbles. Well, thank you so much for answering the flag in your pot plant that I had tactically placed in there <laughs> um, because now Alicia spends so little time online, but thank you so much for answering the flag call and coming onto this show. And I think that that, you know, during COVID actually being in our bubbles internationally and all this sort of stuff, I think there's one thing is just actually having a dialogue and a discourse about, you know, the, the comforts of not being bombarded and people having to unplug and people having to do things for their mental health. And I think that if you, no matter what news source you're reading, if you're watching it 24 hours a day, it's probably not good. Like it's just probably not good for you. And um, even me, who's a crazy person who does these minute by minute examinations into projects. Like if I've watched all the president's men every hour of every day, every minute uh, on 24 hour cycle, I'd probably go insane. I would, I would unplug everything. I'd have to start distributing the podcast via cassette tape. Um, but, uh, you know, I, 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 I just want to say a huge thank you for being a part of the show again, Alicia. Um, obviously, we're such huge fans oh, of welcome. you. And, um, and uh, yeah, just thank you so much for being a part of the show. And uh, this traversing all of the great ground of this wonderful minute. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. Anytime I get to talk about films with fellow film lovers is a good time. So thank you. That was my wonderful guest, Alicia Malone. She completely rocks. Go to her website, aliciamalone.com. You can check out her books, The Female Gaze and Backwards in Heels. Both of them you can get on Amazon or wherever you buy your books. Uh, she's no longer on socials as much, so you, if you're lucky enough, you can check her out on Turner Classic Movies, um, and if you're in the States, that's all the time. If you're in Oz like me, you're seeing her virtually, you're catching up with all the things that she's doing. She's an incredible voice, and I, I'm just so grateful to talk to her every time that she comes and joins me on this show. Folks, thank you so much for listening to All the President's Minutes. Uh, uh, please keep following us. We only have 10, actually 11 more episodes to go. Holy shamoly. Oneheatminute.com is our website. Mail at oneheatminute.com if you want to reach out and get in touch. At ATPM Pod if you want to reach out on Twitter uh, for the show specifically. 
I am Blake Howard, and One Blake Minute is where you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram. We'll catch you on another episode of the show very soon. Thank you for following along, and if you can, please subscribe, rate, share, review. If this is your first time listening, there are so many great guests. Go back through our archives. There's lists on Spotify to do so or on the website, oneheminute.com. We'll catch you on another episode very, very soon.